Numbers is one of those books that I think that in, in general we find, I don't know, hard. We start getting into the weeds of stuff. But there's so many wonderful things in that book. And I, and I hope that as we've been walking through it this time, we've been kind of unlocking and uncovering some of that for you. This past week, we read Numbers chapters 25 through 30. Okay, Basically, Numbers is broken up one chapter a day for six weeks. So that kind of works out very easy for you to, to step back in. You know what we're going to be reading next week as we finish things up. But as we step into Numbers this week, everything about this week was in preparation, with the exception of that first day where we read about the sordid account of of terrible uh, sin that had entered into the camp of Israel. Outside of that, everything is in preparation of entering into the promised land. They take another census. They, They start preparing for the things that God has promised. Forty years is about elapsed. Uh, It's hard to believe because we just read back in chapter 13 that there's a punishment for 40 years. And honestly, by the time we get to about chapter 20, pretty much those 40 years have elapsed. It's a very short period of time. And everything up until now is just preparation. As a matter of fact, we're going to go through the rest of Numbers and all of Deuteronomy before they enter into the promised land. And we're talking a very short period of time. But in this preparation, we're, we're stepping into the idea of succession. And the title of the sermon today is called, Who is Your Successor? Who's coming after you? Now, sometimes if we're in the business world and we have a job that we've worked very hard at, we're not trying to think of somebody displacing us, right? Took us a long time to get here. I'm not looking at displacement. And one of the things that they taught us in ministry is that ideal ministry sets themselves up in such a way to have a successor. In other words, somebody built up from within the ministry ready to take over the reins after one has departed from ministry. But we rarely see that happening in churches today. As a matter of fact, most churches take uh, a step of saying successors come through a search committee and find somebody else who is qualified to step into pastoral roles once the pastor has left. That's what happens in most churches today, most American churches. And when we look at the scriptures, both what we're going to look at in the book of Numbers as well as beyond that, we're going to challenge that premise a little bit. Because I believe, scripturally, the ideal should be something that is practiced by the people of God as a whole. So let's take a look real quick at the passage of scripture that actually uh, affects the leadership of the people of Israel during this time of transition. You guys will remember that Moses is not going to enter into the promised land. This was the punishment that Moses received at the waters of Meribah when he was told to speak to the, to the rock, and he didn't do it. He hit the rock twice, right? And as a result of that, God was still gracious and faithful and, and caused the waters to flow, but judgment came for, for Moses saying, guess what? You're not entering into the land of promise. So the land that I promised my people, you're not going to lead them there. So turn with me to Numbers chapter 27. We're going to start in verse 12, read through the end of the chapter, and it says this. 
And then the Lord said to Moses, go up to this mountain in the Abarim range and see the land that I've given the Israelites. And after you have seen it, you too will be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. For when the community rebelled at the waters in the desert of Zin, both both of you disobeyed my command to honor me as holy before their eyes. These were the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the desert of Zin. Moses said to the Lord, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all mankind, appoint a man over this community to go out and to come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, And lay your hand on him and have him stand before Eleazar the priest and the entire assembly and commission him in their presence. Give him some of your authority so the whole Israelite community will obey him. He is to stand before Eleazar the priest who will obtain decisions for him by inquiring of the Urim before the Lord. At his command, he and the entire community of the Israelites will go out, and as his, at his command, they will come in. And Moses did as the Lord commanded. He took Joshua and had him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole assembly. And then he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord instructed through Moses. See, the time is coming, and Moses is not going to lead the people of Israel into the land of promise, but God is not going to leave them shepherdless. And he raises up Joshua, son of Nun. And so when we look and see Joshua raised up, of course, we know that the next couple of books of the Bible later, we have a book about his leadership, Joshua, right? So we, we know he's going to lead, and we're going to see that leadership work itself out as we continue through the Word of God. However, it might surprise you how much Joshua has been mentioned between now and when the people of Israel left Egypt. If we go back into the Scriptures, we're going to look and see that the preparatory period of Joshua started shortly after their flight from Egypt. And He had been preparing for this role that God was going to place him in for 40 years. That's a pretty amazing thing when you think about it. That this wasn't just some random person that God said, boom, it's you, right? We see Moses in the burning bush, and we see that God specifically chose him to bring the people of Israel out. But with Joshua, we see something different. We see a mentorship that that has risen up over this period of time. Let's take a look at some of the scriptures concerning this. Exodus chapter 17. So if you go to Exodus chapter 17, where we're at is we see the people of Israel right after they have left Egypt find themselves in their first battle, their fight, if you will. And it's not against the Egyptians, it's against the Amalekites. And this time of testing for the Lord is so that the people will trust in God all the more. So let's see what happens here in verse 8 in chapter 17 of Exodus. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua... Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Malachites. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. 
So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. And the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure Joshua hears it. Because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an honor and called it, the Lord is my banner. And he said, for the hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. So here at the first battle that the Israelites have, after they have fled Egypt, Joshua is the one that is chosen by Moses to lead the armies. And he leads faithfully. He leads so faithfully that after they have won this decisive moment, God says in memoriam, not to Moses, not to the people of Israel, not to Aaron, not to her, not to anybody else, but to Joshua. Make sure Joshua hears this. Make sure Joshua understands this. God is already prepping Joshua for leadership among the people of Israel right out of the gate from Egypt. And if you'll remember, to be a fighting man in Egypt, fighting man for Israel, you had to be 20 years or older. So we know that Joshua is a young man at this time. He's somewhere probably in his 20s, maybe his 30s, but he's a young man at this time as he's leading the people of Israel in this battle. And his role becomes more expansive as time goes on. As they continue on in Exodus chapter 24, verses 12 through 14, it says this. And the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here. And I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his aide. And Moses went up on the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. Now we see Joshua in a different position. Now he's not just leading armies. He led the armies in that first battle. Now he's recognized as Moses' aid. Not only is he Moses' aid, God had been telling Moses... Come up with me to the mountain where I'm going to deliver you the Ten Commandments. And the only other person that goes up with him is Joshua. So when Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, while Joshua's not up in the cloud with Moses, he's kind of on standby. He's up on the mountain with Moses at a distance while Moses is in the presence of God. And so 40 days and 40 nights go by, and guess what happens? People of Israel get antsy. They forget. They wonder about what's happened with Moses. We don't know what's happened with Moses. So they go and build a golden calf led by Aaron, right? The high priest. What a wonderful high priest he's got started so far, right? Let's build a golden calf. We've given up on this Moses. We don't know what's happened to him. This, oh, Israel, is your gods, right? 
The whole account there is just ridiculous. You know, they fashioned it with knife. You know, we put it in the fire. And how came this calf? I mean, why wouldn't we worship it? It's got really, really strange. You know who doesn't get caught up in this revelry? The only person who doesn't get caught up in this revelry. Joshua. You know why? Because he's up on the mountain with Moses. As a matter of fact, let's take a look at it real quick. He's the first one to kind of recognize something's off. God's already told Moses, Moses knows things are off. Joshua just hears things are off. Chapter 32 of Exodus, verses 15 through 18, it says, Moses turned and went down the mountain with two tablets of testimony in his hand. He has the Ten Commandments, right? He's walking down with the words of God on it. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there's a sound of war in the camp. And Moses replied, it's not the sound of victory. It's not the sound of defeat. It's the sound of singing that I hear. And they go down and they see the sight that has happened. But, Moses, but Joshua is the one who heard something's up. Moses was already told by God, what's up? Joshua knew something wasn't right. And so right there, this happens. And so Moses comes down and he's mad at the Israelites and he grounds the, the golden calf into dust and throws it into the water and he makes the people of Israel drink it. I'm pretty sure gold water is not great to drink. I'm just saying. See that down at the store. You might want to avoid it, right? So, but they, they're made to drink it. And then afterwards, God commands Moses to go back again to have two more tablets made so that he can bring those tablets down. Because in his anger, Moses broke the first ones, put in the Ark of the Covenant of Testimony. We see in chapter 33... 7 through 11, it says this. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. And anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. And Moses went into the tent. The pillar of the cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. And whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of, to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. So while Moses is communing with God in the tent of meeting, guess who else is there with him? Joshua. Joshua gets a front row seat of leadership of what it means to lead the people of Israel from pretty much day one from leaving Egypt, right? So he leaves Egypt and he's brought forth and he's considered Moses' aid at a very early time. So much so he goes up on the mountain with Moses when he receives the Ten Commandments. He's in the tent of meeting as Moses is conferring with God. He stays there. And when Moses leaves, he's still there. Talk about somebody being raised up for leadership in this area. It's all throughout Moses' ministry, Joshua, is there. 
And this is why when we go to Numbers chapters 13 and 14, when the Israelites grab the elders and say, we want one leader from each tribe to go out and spy the land, Joshua is included. And when he goes up into the land, along with Caleb, son of Jethona, right? We, we see that these two people are the only ones faithful to God with the report that comes back. When they come back and everybody else is like, they were like giants. We can't handle that. And Caleb's like, dude, we have God on our side. If God is on our side, forget these people. Doesn't matter how great they are, their protection is gone. And the reaction of both Caleb and Joshua to the people of Israel, the rest of the people of Israel who don't want to do that, they tear their clothes. They tear their clothes. Say, no, don't do this. And why is that? Because Joshua has been in training since day one. He sees the faithfulness of God through all that's happening. And he's ready to stand against the crowd. He's ready to stand for God no matter what's going on. And you remember, the crowd wanted to stone Moses, wanted to stone Aaron. I guarantee you that includes stoning Caleb, stoning Joshua, stoning anybody who is standing for God. And he has learned by being in the presence of Moses and, more importantly, being in the presence of God. What it means to be a leader. And so when we come to Numbers 27, after 40 years, we still see Joshua that he's still Moses' aide. And now he's ready to take on leadership, ready to stand in the gap where Moses has been doing this for the last 40 years. And he's had a front row seat on seeing exactly how to lead the stiff-necked people that have come out of Egypt. He has seen them at their best. He has seen them at their worst. He has seen the miracle of God work through his hand, that God has spoken directly to him, not just to Moses, concerning things that have happened. He has been trained to be the leader of the people of Israel. See, Moses' training was kind of on the fly. I'm calling you. You're going to go. These are the miracles that are going to happen. Joshua's was under the mentorship of the one who was leading for 40 years. And so when God chooses him, it's an easy choice because we know his heart, don't we? We know that he's for Jesus or we know that he's for God who's going to send Jesus, right? So we know that he's for God. We know that God has already used him. We know that he has been in the presence of the living God. He has seen God interact. He knows the character of God. He knows the character of the people that he's leading. So God chooses him and he says, Moses, it won't be you. It's not going to be Aaron. It's not going to be these people. It's going to be this next generation. And I choose Joshua. You know why? Because he was faithful. He was faithful. His choosing is not unlike what we see Jesus doing in the New Testament. And yet, what we see Jesus do in the New Testament is different than how we're working things out today. And that's got to change. Let me explain to you. So Luke chapter 5. Let's flip over to Luke chapter 5. Familiar passage. 
as Jesus begins to call his disciples. Starting in verse 1, it says this. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. And then he sat out and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he walked to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in, other, in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. So were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. We go down a little bit further in the chapter. We see the calling of Levi, the calling of Matthew. Verse 27, it said this, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. And then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And of course, in the next chapter, we see that Jesus then names the 12 apostles, knowing one of them who would be a traitor. Verse 12 of chapter 6, One of those days Jesus went out on a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. And when the morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, who was named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. This is probably not good American hiring practices. So you're going to be the leader of the church. Well, Jesus goes and prays to the Father all night, and he picks 12, knowing one of them is going to be a traitor to fulfill all of Scripture. How many of us, have, have, how many of us are in charge of some sort of hiring practice in, in your business? Raise your hand. Some of you are. Come on, raise your hand. Be honest. I'm going to pray all night. This one. But he doesn't have the qualifications. Wait a second. He, his resume is sorely, sorely lacking. I can't believe the standards that, you know, we have this other guy who's got this other, and you're praying, and it's this one right here. Jesus spent the night praying, and this is how he chose the 12 disciples. These are the ones the Father said, these are the ones you are to choose to designate as the apostles, the disciples, the one who are going to go forth. And lest you think 
that my characterization is off concerning their unprofessionalness. Let's see what happened after Jesus rose from the dead. They started the church, and we see in Acts chapter 4 this type of um, evaluation of their qualifications, if you will. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 8. Let's check it out. They have healed a man at the gate of beautiful. And he's over 40 years old, so everybody knows a profound miracle has taken place. And, and while they are there, they're questioning Peter and John. And John goes, John and Peter go out and they proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called into account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. Isn't that an interesting thing to note, right? Here are these people who are proclaiming Christ. A great miracle has happened right here. They're standing boldly before the Sanhedrin who have the power to do something to them. And they say... If you want to know what's happened to this guy, it's because of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, whom you rejected as the cornerstone. And they looked at them, and they saw that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They didn't pass the resume test. They didn't. And yet this is how not only the early church started, but how the early church was commanded to seek out leaders from among themselves. So after the churches start start being established by church planters like Paul and Timothy and others that are out there, there become standards that are out there that we're supposed to look to for those who are going to be leaders within the congregations. The elders, elders, bishops, overseers, pastors, these words can be used in kind of conjunction with one another. Throughout the scriptures, they're very interchangeable, okay? It's very important that you guys understand that. So check out Titus chapter 1. As Paul is giving instructions to Titus concerning leadership within the church. Verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to charge of being wild or disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. It's an interesting thing here. The direct instruction given to Titus that when he goes to the different towns 
in Crete, where churches have been established, he is to appoint elders. He's not bringing elders with him, by the way. He's not saying, I've got a pool of 20 elders coming with me, and they've got great resumes, and this is Jared. And Jared is awesome, and we're bringing him to your town. No, they were dealing with elders appointed from amongst their congregations to be built up as leaders within their congregations, to share the deep truths of the faith, to encourage the people to be faithful, and to be able to refute heresy that might come into that place. See, this is the way in which we see the early church grow. Because it was incumbent upon every congregation to provide for themselves leaders who would become mature in the faith along the way. This is what Jesus did with his disciples. He took a motley crew of 12 people, knowing one of them was going to be a traitor. He took those 11 that were left over, and he put them all through different types of things while he was here on earth. Three and a half years. Living together, pretty much those three and a half years. fifteen to 20,000 hours of teaching. A lifetime of teaching in a small period of time. As a matter of fact, that's about the same amount of time your kids are in school, by the way. About 16,000 hours. That's how much time he spent with the disciples in saying, this is what I'm doing for you. I'm showing you. Not only am I showing you, I'm also going to give you different tasks. We see in Matthew chapter 10 and Luke chapter 10, him sending out the disciples during his ministry to go prepare the way from him. Why? Because they needed experience. We see all the mistakes the disciples make. We see lots of mistakes, don't we? Peter's saying, you're never going to die. Get behind me, Satan. Man, if we just took Peter's mistakes, that's what we all fear, isn't it? We fear mistakes. Those things are in Scripture, and Jesus loved Peter because he was bold in his love for Jesus. He wasn't afraid to make mistakes or be called out by Jesus because you know what? Jesus was training him to be a disciple and an apostle later on. And you do that by making mistakes along the way. We all want everybody to be perfect and primrose coming into this place. And so we try our best to make sure that the people that we bring into this place are without fault. Ah, Doesn't work. Because I'm just as flawed as any one of you. Right? And we've grown into, in our American culture, a professionalism that is not found in the Scripture. We look for our pastors someplace else than from among us. The average Christian church does this. I'm not going to say it's every Christian church because that's not true. But the average Christian church, pastor leaves, who's succeeding him? Well, we've got to get a search committee out. And we've got to get a search committee out so that we can get all the accolades of the people who will be coming in with their pieces of paper. Because we need schooled people who can do the work instead of spirit-filled people who are following Jesus who know the people that they're ministering to. See, by taking an American approach... To discipleship in the church, we've hurt discipleship because we've relegated it to the professionals. And we relegate it to the professionals, and it's somebody else's job to be the pastor. It's somebody else's job to be the elder, the minister, the one who leads in ministry in these other areas. Or we deem ourselves unqualified because we're worried that we're going to mess up. 
Let me tell you something. I've been a pastor 22 years. I've messed up a lot, even though I have the credentials. I can show you my credentials. Right? Who still messed up? Lots. But God wants you, wants the leaders of the church, the future of the church, the future pastors of this church to come from this place, and he'll equip you to do it. He'll have people to walk alongside you around this place so that you might be fully equipped. Are you going to make mistakes? Yes, you're going to make mistakes. Yes, you're going to mess up. And maybe some of those mess ups are as big as Peter's where he says, you'll never die and say, get behind me, Satan. Maybe you'll be getting onto a good bit by people because you messed up, but you're messing up in the name of Jesus. And Jesus is going to use that because experience is just this, messing up a lot and learning from it. Those of you in leadership position, wherever you're at in the real world, guess what? That's what your experience is. Tell me. I learned, I learned not to do this because I did this one time and it messed me up. So I tell everybody else, don't do this, right? And it's not because you didn't mess up, it's because you did. And you're trying to teach them not to do what you did and they're gonna make their own mistakes and then you're gonna get on to them. And guess what? God wants you. God wants the leaders of this church to come from this church, Whoever comes to replace, I'm not looking to be replaced anytime soon, just so you know, okay? Just wanted you guys to know that. But someday it's going to happen. I'm not here perpetually. Neither are you. So who are we raising up? Who's going to be that next person who comes up into ministry? Because in ministry, you're supposed to be able to hand this off to somebody else. Moses is ready to hand off this leadership to Joshua because Joshua has been trained for 40 years. You know what I do love about what's happened last 22 years that I've been here? We're starting to see that culture begin to be raised up in this place. It is so cool to see. It really is. I want it continued, but I want you to know the reason I want it continued is just not because it's a feather in our cap, because it's biblical. This is how we should be making disciples. When it's us who are being raised up as leaders for our own church, we are making disciples who are making disciples. That's biblical Christianity. What's not biblical Christianity is saying, let's go get some hired gun to hopefully motivate us to do the things of Jesus. No, that's your job. That's your job. Starting in your home. Starting in your churches, starting in all this place. So guess what? There are some of you who are life group leaders who never thought you'd be a life group leader. You know why? Because you've been growing your faith. There are some of you on the elder board right now, never thought you'd be an elder. And you're in that place because of the grace of God has been growing you into that position. You know what I really love? Got hired here in 2001, 2008. Mark Scales came on staff. You know what I love about that? Mark Scales from here. Mark Scales isn't from outside. I'm from outside. I've been here 22 years, so I think I might be inside too. But Mark Scales from outside, from inside. He's really from here. And him coming on staff was huge. You know why? Because that's somebody here who knows the people who are here, who can minister to the people who are here. And for 14 years, him and Barbara were able to do that here. You know what I love is I, I got to raise up Christian to be somebody who was leading the youth group for about a year and a half. 
after mentoring him for nearly a decade because he could step into it. Now he's not here anymore. You know where he's at? In North Carolina, leading his own ministry of youth. You know why? Because he's been trained up. Been made disciples. You know what I love? I love that Sam came up here and guess what? He wasn't a worship leader. He's brought up by Diane to say, we're going to bring Sam up and he's going to help me in leading in worship. And now look at him leading in worship today. Isn't that awesome? In this place. We see the same thing with Madeline who comes up a few years ago and step into this worship leading role. Isn't that great? And then when Mark leaves, guess what we did? We said, you know what? We need some help in some technical areas. You know what we're going to do? We're going to grab somebody from inside to help us in areas that we need who's strong in the Lord. And so we have David who's been doing an amazing job. And then this past month, we see my son being raised up to step into youth ministry. It's not because we can't and we have others who are being prepared. We've got Dathan who's over there at Hope who's stepping into ministry and has a heart for doing stuff for ministry. God is raising up people in this place. Why would we look anyplace else? Because nothing can replace their knowledge of you. Nothing can replace the zeal of what we know of them and their heart for the Lord. And so when Titus is told to appoint elders, he's telling them to appoint a known commodity, not an unknown one. And in the church, the reason we do that is because that's how leadership and discipleship perpetuates itself. And so life group leaders, you need to be looking for somebody to be a life group leader. You know why? Because someday you might not be that life group leader. Everybody's time comes. We need to be perpetuating ministry within this place. For other places, that's why I love what Mike shared with the Holy Cow Ministry. I pray somebody takes that up. You know why? Because that's perpetuating ministry. It's not hiring somebody else. Hey, we need a job description so somebody can go out and administer communion. No, you need to learn how to do it for the glory of God. And we need to do it here and now. So my encouragement to you today as we close is simply this. You are the future of the church. The future pastor of this church is in this place. The future worship leaders of the church are in this place. The future life group leaders, the future elders, the future children's church workers, the future, you name it, they're in this place. Because if we're going to build and disciple the way that God wants us to disciple, we do so from the inside. This is how he prepared in the Old Testament. This is how Jesus prepared the New Testament Christians. This is a command that was given, and it's on you, and it's on me, to make sure that the next generation knows Jesus from our lips not from our pastor's resume. Do you stand with me? Man, if you knew my retiring date, if you knew my retiring date, I'm not giving it to you because I don't have one yet. Um, <laughs> What would it take for you to be ready to take over that position?
shouldn't you be doing that now? God wants you ready. You're the future of the church. The future is now. Can have our elders come forward? If you have a need, we want you to come forth and pray. But if you have a calling, if God truly has called you and you've been waiting for a professional, you think I'm not professional enough to do it, let me tell you something. I'm not going to look at your resume. I'm going to look at your heart for God. If you knowing the truth of the word of God and a desire to know and draw close to Jesus, if you have those things, you can be trained to be a leader, not according to my criteria, but according to his. All you have to do is step into it and trust that he'll prepare you for it and not be afraid of the failures that are going to come in between. If that's you, I want you to come forward to talk with one of these men. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for our time together today as we, in this time that you might be seating people right now, the future of your church, Lord. Maybe they've been waiting for somebody else. That's not your plan. Your plan is them. Now, here, this place, these people, Lord. Give them the courage to step forward. Make that first step on being the leader of the future of this church that we might make disciples as you've called us to in Jesus' name. Amen.